got some extra additions up here now, which is great. I love it. One of these will be explained here uh, at the end, but ha- happy Thanksgiving weekend. Hope everyone have a good Thanksgiving and enjoyed slowing down. And uh, I think I love it for many reasons. I love that most stores are closed. I actually get upset when some stores aren't. So hopefully you all had the day off of work to at least have one extra day just to slow down and reflect on God's goodness in your life and being with family and friends and getting to uh, celebrate. I want to thank you for joining us tonight on what will be the conclusion to a three-month-long journey through the book of Nehemiah. At last, we've arrived at chapter 13, and as all good fairy tales go, they rode off into the sunset together, continue to sing hymns of joy from last week, and they hold hands, and they live happily ever after, the end. Now, we would expect this ending, if this were a, maybe a Disney Plus movie, for that just came out, if any of you have that. Um, if the Bible were a book filled with fairy tales, but the Bible is realistic. It's not a book full of fairy tales, and so this is not how our story is going to end tonight. Uh, if we wanted the story in that way, then we should have concluded it in chapter 12 uh, last week. We should have finished there, celebrated, uh, had our meal, and then just cut out chapter 13 altogether and said we're going to move on to something different. So I'll go ahead and give you the bad news if you haven't read ahead or if you're not familiar with the story. Nehemiah is not going to end the way that we want it to end. It's not going to end the way that it has been built up for three months. If anything, this, this book is going to end on kind of, a, kind of a downer. Throughout this series, we've seen God show up, and he's moved in some incredible ways, and only ways that he can do. And this allowed them to rebuild this, the wall. This led them rebuilding the city. This allowed them to rebuild the people. And then we see this huge celebration last week where they come in, they're singing and they're dancing and they're marching around the city walls and taking time to finally just reflect on everything that's happened. But instead of ending on a high note of celebration, we're actually going to see the, the story end tonight and really what's more of a, of a heartbreak. It's where those where you're, you're following the story, then you open the news article or you turn on CNN and you're like, what happened? I thought things were going like pretty, pretty good. Like, you know, they've had some opposition and things, but things are going fairly well. Like what happened to this story? So let me give us a warning on the front end. We have the tendency to read a chapter of scripture like this in a really unhealthy way. We are going to see their sinfulness exposed. It's going to be put out there on a table in front of us where we get to kind of peer over and see everything that they're going to do wrong. And it would be easy for us to think, well, I'm not that bad, or at least I didn't do what they did, or I would never, I would never do those things. But what I want us for us to realize as we read a chapter of scripture like this, it is more accurately like a mirror in front of us which in turn will expose our weaknesses and sin. And so I want you to not look at so much as we're peering into this, although we have that advantage of ones who have the the Bible in front of us, but really more of a mirror to kind of go, where are the areas of my own life where I have weakness and I still have brokenness and I haven't given this over to the Lord? And this chapter will show us that many times we start well, but we don't always finish well. Some of us tend to overpromise and then we underdeliver. Some of us tend not to make good on our commitments. Perhaps some of you started 2019, you said, this is my year, things are going to go my way, I'm not turning back to 2018, however good or bad that was, like 2019, like this is it, the right job opportunity, or the right move, or whatever it was going to be, and yet here we are at the end of 2019, you've got one month left, it's December 1st, how are things working out? For some of you, you might be going, yeah, it's, it's been exactly as I hoped, and others might be like, man, it has not gone the way I hoped at all, in fact, it's gone the total opposite, we were meeting with a couple last night. They're part of a church plant out in, out in Beaverton called Remedy City, and they moved here about June, and they were just saying, it's been way harder than we thought. This, this expectation that we had coming into this church plant is not what we anticipated. 
And uh, so we were just able to kind of share with them and even, even share a little bit about Nehemiah and kind of how this story goes. And so the warning for us is regardless how well we start out, individually, as a family, as a church family, we can start out really, really well, but we could end up in the exact same situation. We could end up being the exact same way of the people here. So I want you to keep that in front of you tonight, and I want you to ask yourself this. What's the story that your life will tell? Something we don't necessarily think about often. You know, we don't want to think about when our life is over, when we think about memorial services or a funeral. But what is the story? Let's just say that's what we're doing tonight. We're here celebrating your life. And I know that's really, really sad, and we'd all be sad and somber. But what is it the story that your life would tell? What is it the stories we're telling? What is it that you would be known for? What will the impact of your life be? Welcome to Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah served about 12 years in Jerusalem. He was part of a great revival, but then he had to go back to Susa. And so after being in the, the Persian court for an undefined amount of time, he returns to Jerusalem, the place that he had been laboring and investing in, and he finds spiritual deterioration. And so while Nehemiah does not end on a high note, the Bible does end on a high note. And this is a great reminder for us that Nehemiah is just one part of the greater um, drama and narrative of scripture. And while it doesn't end well for this story and doesn't end well here for these people, we can finish the story with great anticipation. Tonight's sermon is really going to fulfill two purposes. First, this is the end of our series for the city, where we have been for the last three months and asking ourselves every single week, what does it mean for the people of God to exist for the good of the city where they live? For us, that's the city of Portland. And we've all found ourselves here for different reasons. Some of us were born here, some of us moved here recently, some of us have lived here for several years. But regardless, God has brought us all together in this faith community and saying, what does it look like to live for the good of our city, for the people around us? And tonight's chapter is going to leave us longing for Christmas. And so the second purpose, this is also the start of our four weeks of Advent, as Lola has already told us at the beginning. With the remaining three weeks, what we will see is that hope is here. And so while the passage tonight in the specific chapter, if this was where the story ended, we'd go, is there any hope? Is it doesn't seem like it. And then the following three weeks we're going to come in as we get to celebrate this first advent, this first coming of Jesus, says, hope is here and we have hope. It's important for us to remember, <clears throat> excuse me, in the context of Nehemiah, chronologically, Nehemiah is the very last book of the Bible in the Old Testament. And so here we are at the end of the Old Testament, all of a sudden we have Nehemiah and things go silent for 400 years and so this final chapter, if you know, think about 400 years of silence, it does leave you with this like, oh, it's going to end that way? Like, really? That's, that's the, the, the ending? Like, where's this good news that I'm waiting for? And so 400 years ago by, by before the arrival, what we now know as the New Testament. So turn to Nehemiah chapter 13, and let's see what Nehemiah finds when he returns. Let's see how he responds, and let's see how he prepares us for the advent of our coming king. Nehemiah 13, starting verse 1. It says, On that day they read from the book of Moses and the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. So they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. So these first few verses are continuing to set up the renewal and dedication that we saw last week. And the text closely follows Deuteronomy chapter 23, which expressly excluded Moabites and Ammonites from the religious assembly of Israel 
because of their historical enmity against Israel and their infection with idolatry. And so these people were kind of excluded because they were known to come in and their idolatry would influence those around them. Now, other nations were welcome to believe in Israel's God. Think of Ruth, the Moabite, who said, your people are my people and your God is my God. But for those that refused, they were to be removed to protect the people from idolatry. So it's like they were to be removed altogether from the community so they would not infect those around them. And this is a good step, and it shows that the dedication and renewal period probably lasted for several weeks. So we saw the initial celebration last week and the singing and the choirs, but it probably lasted for several weeks. So it wasn't just a, a one-night event. But then what we're going to see, and starting in verse 4, is we'll see the decline several years later. It's important for us to note that it's an estimated about 12 years goes by from verse 3 in this chapter and verse 6. And so the downfall doesn't happen immediately. So it's not like, here they are celebrating one week, and the very next week things go completely the opposite direction. It was a 12-week period, but if you think about it, that's still a relatively um, quick amount of time for it to go the opposite direction. You know? And so it's like, we know that we're in Portland, we're in one of the least religious, most atheistic cities in our country, and it's like, we see things change during our lifetime, and as our church gets established, and others get established, and you see that stats change, and this is like now the most churched and, and most reached area of our country, and we're sending out missionaries everywhere. And then 12 years later, we kind of go back and it's like, wait a minute, now it's worse than it ever was in the history of Portland. Like, what in the world happened? And what this chapter reminds us, what it shows us is that while the Reformation is good, it is also never really complete. I mean, even think about the Protestant Reformation, which is the one most of you are familiar with. It did some really, really good things. And the churches like ours, even they are influenced by that. But there's still things that were left out. And if you go back to some of those very same areas, where, where are they now? And so Reformation is good, but it's never really complete. And so what we will see here in the remaining verses is we're going to find four main errors that arise, that lead to the downfall. And then we're going to see Nehemiah come in with four responses to Judah's sinfulness and rebellion. So pick up in verse 4. It says, now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine and oil which were given by commandment to the Levites, the singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king, and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashab had done for Tobiah, preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with grain offering and the frankincense. And so we're going to see in this section of verses, our very first error by the people is a compromise, as they are now associating with pagans. Not only are they associating with pagans, but they've actually allowed pagans to move into the temple, which is desecrating the temple. And so we see this phrase, it says, now before this, which is referring to the events that happened while Nehemiah was away. So it's not like Nehemiah was there where he could kind of protect them and, and think about kind of a, a pastor in the shepherding sense where he could come in and guard. And that's one of the roles I kind of have to kind of say, hey, like, no, this cannot happen here. Well, he was gone. He was away. And so these events happen um, before the dedication day and, and, and in that time of renewal. And notice verse 6. He says, while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. And so we've moved past that time of dedication. We've moved past that time of celebration. Nehemiah has gone back to, to other work, what things he has to do. And then this is what starts happening. 
And so in spite of all the previous reforms, in spite of all those things they put in place, all these multiple chapters leading up to this week, we now read of a total disregard of Scripture. Think about just a few chapters back, chapter 10, if you were with us. It says the people committed to obeying Scripture in three main ways. The first way is they said we will marry believers. In other words, we're going to marry people who, who think like we do, who worship the same God that, that we worship. And then the second thing is that we're going to honor the Sabbath. We're going to honor the Sabbath day. We're going to keep it holy. And the third thing they, they said they were going to do is they were going to support the temple because they knew the importance of worship and supporting those who were leading out in worship. But here we find ourselves, chapter 13, these same three areas are the primary ones that people are no longer obeying. And so the three things, they said, man, these are the things we are going to do. These are the things we're going to be known for. And now they're doing the complete opposite and not total disregard for all three of those. And so we see Nehemiah come in. His first response to their era of compromise is he cleanses the temple. So we see Tobiah. He's a character we've seen previously throughout this book. He was an Ammonite, and he hates God's people. Tobiah is not a good guy. Tobiah had married a Jew and his son to another. Um, this is back in chapter 6, verse 18, which is problem number one. That we see the marrying of unbelievers, kind of the intermarriage taking place here. And it's possible that Eliasha, maybe he didn't completely buy into kind of the strict policy that Nehemiah had set up. And so it's, it's almost like if Nehemiah is there, man, we've got to follow this because Nehemiah says we've got to do it. But also Nehemiah is out of the picture. Any of you ever do this? Or maybe my children do this whenever mom or dad aren't in the room. Like, well, I know they said not to do this, but maybe they didn't really mean this. And they start twisting the words and... Maybe they only meant for like a week, and then I could do it, or maybe a couple months, or maybe they meant like after Nehemiah has been gone for six months, then we're allowed to start doing this again. And so Eliashab and Tobiah, they formed this tight bond. Apparently, apparently um, the, the pagan Tobiah had very much influence on, on Eliashab, and he compromises big time. And so Nehemiah comes in. He's, he's returned. It's been 12 years. So you can imagine he's coming into this city. I'm sure he's heard some chatter of what's happening. He, he enters into the temple, and he is not happy. It says he was so angry that he threw all the furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. So we can imagine a scene. Now, I know some of us may maybe come from broken homes, but imagine a scene of a, of a couple that they find out that one was spouse was cheating on the other one. And you've seen this on sitcoms. And all the furniture is just like thrown out, like you're getting out, like you're kicked out. And so we can imagine this scene. Or even I know this, this is just a stamp building and, and we don't own it, but let's just say we own this. And this is during, during our time of worship and gathering. And someone's in here, and they're just desecrating this, this time of worship that, you know, we just come in, we just start chucking the chairs out and whatever stuff they had brought in because they were, had desecrated the temple. Now, Nehemiah's response, it might catch us by surprise. Like, man, that doesn't seem like a very godly thing to do, just to throw the furniture out. But we must not forget of Jesus' response to the money changers in the temple. When he came in and, and found what was happening in the temple, and he said, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And he made a whip of cords, and he drove them out of the temple with sheep and oxen. And so we see Jesus himself, that there's this, this form of righteous anger. We always, we always tend to think of anger as the wrong response. Hey, don't get angry. Just calm down. Maybe you've had that conversation with your spouse. You don't have to raise your hand. Or maybe over Thanksgiving dinner, someone got upset about politics. Hey, just calm down. We always think of anger as, as the wrong response. But there's a, there's a righteous anger as well. It tells us in Ephesians, there are times of anger that are permissible and right, and this is one of those times. It's time for action. It's not time for discussion. You guys know I love grabbing coffee. I probably drink way more coffee than I should. And so you might think, man, there's times we need to, hey, let's sit down over coffee, and let's just kind of talk this out. Well, this is not one of those times. That is way past. Like, you've had the chance. You've had opportunities. We set these things in place. We've had these reforms. I've come back in. You've desecrated the temple. Now it's time for action. The discussion part is over. 
And so what I believe is that Nehemiah is actually reflecting God's own anger toward their sin. God hates sin. He is not dispassionate towards sin. We live in a day of be nice and affirm everything I do. I I just listened to a podcast this afternoon, and specifically millennials, which is my generation, and Gen Z. Like, it is more prevalent than any other time before. So be nice, affirm everything I do. And there is a good side of that. There is some, there's some goodness to that. But we've also taken it to this really scary and dangerous degree, especially in our city of Portland. Just, just affirm everything that, that we do. So Nehemiah should just be accepting, right? He should come in and find the temple desecrated and be like, oh, that's cool. You, you guys do you. We'll, you know, we'll come in later and do it a little bit differently. No, this is happening among God's people in God's house. Such a blatant misuse of the temple could not be tolerated. It had to be confronted. I love just seeing how Nehemiah just confronts things head on. He just comes and says, this is not how it's meant to be. I'm throwing the furniture out. You are getting out, and we are going to put reforms back into place. And so he sees the misuse of the temple as a desecration. He restores the polluted area to its proper use. Now let's see where he goes in verse, starting verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, So that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithes of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Selemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pediah of the Levites. And as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zachar, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. So we see the second error by the people here is carelessness in neglecting the Levitical support. In other words, they were neglecting the tithes and offerings that they had that they had vowed to support, they had covenant to support the worship in the temple. And so as he deals with the neglect of the offerings, we see that the temple incident with Tobiah was not isolated. This, this is one of the, the first things to go. As we saw previous weeks, one of the first things that says, we need to support the temple. We need to support the priests. Like, we need to make sure that, that we honor the Sabbath and do the worship. But all of a sudden, um, during this 12-year period, one of the things that lapsed was the support for the leaders. And so worship itself actually suffered as a result because the, the clergy had to leave Jerusalem. They had to say, man, we can't afford to be here. We have to take care of ourselves, so we, we have to leave and go elsewhere. And as a result, the worship of God then ceased as the priests had to take care of their own families. Now, God's plan for them, he had set it up this way, was that they would be sustained by these tithes, and the people had committed to doing so. The people got together and said, we commit to take care of these leaders so that we continue to be led out in worship, but now they have failed to keep their promise. And most of you know that, that I live on outside support primarily, and I'm thankful for our donors. And so thankfully, they continued in our two years here to continue to follow through on their commitment so that we can be here doing what God has called us to do and that God's called them to be part of that process. But the people here had committed to support these leaders, and they failed to keep their promise. And so as Nehemiah comes in, he finds out this is going on, and his second response is he renews the tithes. He comes in, he rebukes the officials who were responsible. He finds those people and says, hey, you, you did not continue um, on with your end of the deal. And so public worship has been neglected as a result. And so he confronts them. He sets things right. And what do we see the people do? They respond by bringing their offerings. And so while the priority of worship had been disregarded, Nehemiah says, this cannot be tolerated. 
One, you're, you're letting someone live in the temple who shouldn't be there. He needs to get out. We cannot ignore worshiping together. And so um, he says we have to re, reinstate the, the tithe in order to let worship continue to go on. Not making corporate worship priority is an obvious sign of spiritual decline. Corporate worship for you, modern day, 20, almost 2020 now, it's not an option. But it's easier than ever to make it optional, is it not? Gathering with the people of God. There's so many other things we could do, especially in a city like our size. Hiking, I love hiking, so I'm not saying things are bad. Camping, I love hiking. I mean, I love camping and hiking and snowboarding and all these things we can do. We can go bowling, we can watch movies. I was laying down taking a cat nap in front of my fire, uh, my real fire, not the one that was on the TV <laughs> over here. Uh, right before I came over here this evening, I was like, this smells so nice. I could just lay here on the floor. But we must value and honor coming together as the people of God and worshiping God together. This cannot be optional. If you think about it, the reality is that almost everything else in our life is optional in the grand scheme of things. All those other things you can do at other times, all those other things you don't necessarily have to do other than worshiping together as the body of Christ. And so Nehemiah comes in and says, no, we need to reinstate this. You need to be together as the people of God. And so as part of restoring the temple worship, he puts people in leadership. He says, man, clearly I'm going. we got to put some people in leadership here who are going to oversee this. And so he puts people that were reliable, people of character, as we see in Titus 1. And so we see he values those that were considered reliable, faithful, available, responsible, and humble. Be those kinds of people. I guarantee if, if we're all reliable and faithful, available, responsible, and humble to one another and to those visitors that come into Sojourn, that this church will grow as we're taking care of our, our needs internally and externally and the new people who come in and join us. And Nehemiah finishes this section with a prayer of remembrance to God. He says he asked God to take note of his faithful actions. And it somewhat resembles certain psalms in which the psalmist pleads his righteousness in the context of praise. Saying, God, please remember the things that I did. So Nehemiah's work here, it's not popular. It isn't in step with everyone else, but it is for the people's good and for the glory of God. And so Nehemiah was taking some very hard actions. Apparently he left, and for 12 years others had sat around. you got to think there were other leaders there. They had just kind of let this stuff kind of creep in, and it, it just kind of happened. You know, I'm sure it didn't happen overnight, but over that 12-year period, you know, it probably started with, well, Nehemiah's gone, so here he is a week later. And here we are two weeks later, and all of a sudden we get to six months, and then we get to 12 years, and it's like things have gotten so far off. And so he comes in, I'm, I'm guessing at this point Nehemiah is not a popular leader. As he comes and says, man, you guys are not doing things the way we set them up. You're not doing right. I'm kicking him out, throwing furniture. I'm yelling at people and doing all of these things. So in this life, we have to decide, whom will you live for? You can't live for God's glory and be a people pleaser. And that's really hard for most of us, if, if we're honest. That's hard for me. You know why? Because I hear everyone's voice all, all up here. I hear everyone's opinion. We need to do more of this. And so, okay, let's do more of this. And no, we need to do less of that, this because we do too much of this. And then, you know, we need to do these. And it's like, oh, my goodness. And so we have to take a step back, all of us, say, God, what is it that you want us to do? What is it you are calling us to do as the people of God in the city of Portland, in northeast Portland, at Sojourn Church? We can't live for God's glory. We can't be a people pleaser. And the reality is we're always going to disappoint people. I was talking to a mentor in my life recently. And I just said, yeah, you know, I do this. I'm afraid I'm disappointing people. He goes, Matt, let me tell you the reality. Because I've been pastor for 25 years. You're always going to be disappointing people because you're not God. And that's just going to be right. It doesn't mean you try to do it, but you're never going to satisfy everyone. And so we must live for God's glory. And then we see that Nehemiah was ultimately worried about pleasing an audience of one, and that was God alone. Look in verse 15. It says, in those days, 
I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath? As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded the doors should be shut, and I gave orders that they should not be opened till after the Sabbath. And I stationed them, some of my servants, at the gates, that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them, and I said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember, this is also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So here we have the third area, the third error, which is commercialism in the form of abusing the Sabbath. The community, once again, is something else. They said, this is what we're going to do, and they're breaking it, so they're sinning, breaking the Sabbath, and it leads Nehemiah to rebuke the people. And so the two offenses that are taking place here, first, is that they're working on the Sabbath. They're bringing loads of food into Jerusalem, and they're selling them. And then second is um, the offense is the foreigners. It says they could, those who could care less about the Sabbath, but they're coming in and selling fish and all kinds of goods on the Sabbath. And so we must remember, now for us, we might go like, what's, what's the big deal? Like, I want the new seasons today, or, you know, I did this today, or, or, or those kind of things. But we must remember, specifically during this time, the Sabbath was a sign of Israel's relationship with God. It marked them out as God's people. So they were unique to the fact that they did this. It was a, to be a day of rest and worship and a gift from God. We think about this time of year as like kind of a gift giving. This is one of the gifts that God gave to his people and, and still to us today. And it reflected a deep trust in God to provide for them because they were taking this day where they were not working, where they were not providing for themselves. And think about practically, this is also how God designed life should be. It's not all about work. It must include work. We all need jobs. We all need to be able to pay our bills. And so it must include work, but it can't all be about work. In fact, I would say everyone should Sabbath, and you will Sabbath, either involuntarily or voluntarily. Hopefully it's voluntarily because then you actually enjoy it a little bit more. You can kind of set out, like, what it is that you want to do, what's restful for you, what's worshipful for you. But I know people who have gone really and just hit burnout, and so involuntarily. I mean, people who have even gone to extreme of having to be hospitalized because they just kept going, 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 and then finally it just hit them. And so I think God gave us a really good gift when he gave us this idea of, of Sabbath and rest. But unfortunately, the people had become just like everyone else. They were pursuing money, more work, and property. So all that had replaced the Sabbath rest. As they said, man, I've got, we've got we've to do all these things. We've got to get ahead of the next guy. We've got to kind of climb this ladder, so to speak. And their unique relationship to God was no longer visible outside of it. Like, they looked just like everyone else around them. And so it's kind of like, well, you're no different than me. I mean, you do the exact same thing. And what makes you so unique as the people of God? And so Nehemiah confronts the nobles, and he reminds them, like, what happened historically when the people violated God's commands regarding the Sabbath? Exile. And so he's saying, look, guys, do you not remember what happens when you fail to do these things that you set out to do? The, you, as the people of God, we were exiled. 
And so by doing so, again, they were placing themselves under God's anger. And so Nehemiah comes in, and his third response is he enforces the Sabbath. Thankfully, he still has enough personal authority. You know, he's been gone 12 years, so I'm thinking, like, who's the new guy in charge? I'm kind of going, like, who do you think you are? But, man, he comes in like a firestorm, reinforces the Sabbath, and, and he takes action by closing and guarding the gates. It says he also placed his own men there to prevent traitors from entering the city. And so he said, hey, we're going to set guys out the gate to make sure they don't even enter the city, those who don't honor the Sabbath. And then he made threats against the foreigners. He didn't even want there to be a temptation of trading on the Sabbath, so he threatened to lay hands on them if they did, and not, not like a prayerful laying hands. And so we've seen Nehemiah throwing out furniture. We see him coming in, confronting people boldly, and then he says, man, if you come in, if you do this again, I'm going to lay hands on you. And so we kind of see this, this threat of this righteous anger. And then he gets the Levites involved. And then he, he prays up another prayer of remembrance. And so I can, can imagine him being like really angry to me like, all right, God, remember what I did. You know, kind of in the midst of that anger at what is happening here. And then finally in verse 23, it says, In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take your daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And on one of the sons of Jehudai, the son of Eliashab, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed from them every, everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times. And for the first fruits, remember me, O oh my God, for good. And so we come in and we see the fourth and final error by the people, and they're intermarrying with pagans. So here it is again, this problem of intermarriage. They're ignoring commitments that start out with things like the Sabbath that should have sustained the Israelites and their identity in Christ, and then they're intermarrying with persons of other religions. You think about back in um, Ezra, just a couple chapters ago, he came in with this great reform and this great revival, but it seems like it didn't have a very long-lasting effect. And so what we see happen is this drift. And one generation's compromise would have lasting effects. Once again, I'm sure these things didn't just happen overnight. It wasn't like, man, we're having this big celebration, chapter 13, and all of a sudden it's like none of it again. But it's like a piece of driftwood, and you, you see it kind of going down the ocean, or maybe it's, it's in the river, and you just kind of see it going down. It's like they're getting further and further away. It starts out with something small, right? And then we do this in our own lives, do we not? Like, well, I mean, I can, I can do this thing this one time. Like that, you know, and you're kind of like, oh, no, like the Holy Spirit's saying that's not, I shouldn't do that. But it's just drifting away. And so we're allowing the compromise to come in. And so we see that it's got the effects to, to have lasting effects on, on generations to come. They were in danger of losing their entire spiritual heritage because of, of allowing themselves to drift away from the things of God. And so Nehemiah comes in one more time with a fourth response, which is cleansing the people by disciplining the unfaithful. I know we don't think of disciplining in very popular terms, but this is what Nehemiah comes in and he does this. He comes in, he rebukes and pronounces a curse on them and called condemnation on them. Now we've seen this a couple times throughout, but this time it says that he beat them and he pulled out their hair. 
Like, what in the world? Now, when I, when I read that this week, I was like, what? Like, am I ever allowed to do that? I'm not saying I want to do that, but I was just like, is this okay? Is this not okay? I'm not recommending to go do this and say, well, I'm just following the Bible. Like, Nehemiah went and did this. But he beat them, and he pulled out their hair. This is a violent and symbolic, powerful reaction as he's calling the people back to the Mosaic law and it points to the example of Solomon who had turned from faithfulness to the Lord by his foreign wife. Now, these events are not altogether clear. Now, and, and so I know you might go, man, we, we shouldn't like celebrate that he does this necessarily. And it can be interpreted in different ways. But it may be referring to um, a criminal offense. As how the, if you look at Deuteronomy 25, it says, If there is a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more. Lest if one should go on and beat him with more, more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. And so we could be very critical of Nehemiah here for his violence. There's a lot of historical context that we're not going to have the time to unpack here this evening. But many claim that it was likely a public shaming ritual for the way that the people had treated these things they put in place and going against their covenants that they had given to God. Now, viewed positively, what we should remember is that Nehemiah was an ambassador from Persia and a leader in Judah. So he was able to use a force that would have been culturally and historically um, acceptable and take drastic actions in this particular historical context. He makes the offenders take an oath to not give their children a marriage to the unbelievers. And he supports his measure by making a biblical argument using Solomon, who, Solomon who came to ruin because of this very offense, and it led the nation into ruin. And so marriages to pagans have even occurred among the priestly circle, as we saw there in some of those verses. When we are indistinguishable, indistinguishable from the world, we not only dishonor God, but we lose our influence in the world around us. And so that's really what's happening here, is that you can no longer see a difference. Whereas chapter 12 Everything had been put into place. He's rebuilt the wall. They've rebuilt the city. The people have re been rebuilt. This is the people of God. And it was very clearly like they are set apart. They are different. Twelve years later, it's, you can't tell the difference. And so Nehemiah prays again, and he asks the Lord to remember the, the offenders on the day of judgment. He cleanses the temple, but he left room for God's wrath. And so in the final two verses, Nehemiah summarizes all that he has done to ensure pure worship and support for the clergy. And he offers up a general prayer to God to remember everything that has happened. So to summarize our final chapter, we've seen four errors. We see the compromising of the temple use. They were no longer using it for what it was set apart for. We see the carelessness by forsaking corporate worship. It's, kind of, it's an optional thing. Like We don't necessarily have to do this. We see the commercialism coming in, and they excuse wickedness in the name of financial gain. We're no longer going to support the temple. We're no longer going to support the workers. And then that final thing is we see them intermarrying with pagans, doing what they set out and said they would not do. So what a depressing ending to a three-month journey. Happy Thanksgiving and Merry Christmas. Here's, here's, our, here's our series. In preparation for this week, I wondered, why didn't God let Nehemiah end in, in chapter 12, verse 43? It was on a, it was on a high note. Like, it was, it was a climatic point in the book. Like, why didn't it end there? Like, wouldn't that be such a better story? Because the Bible isn't a fairy tale, and God didn't want it to end that way. So here we are. We're at the very end of the Old Testament history. And what do we find? We find failure. The people have failed to live up to the standards of God again. 
And so some ways, think about Nehemiah's story. It really reflects the entire Old Testament. We see sin at the beginning, we see sin in the middle, and we see sin at the end. So what do we do? We stand at the end of the Old Testament, and we wonder if there's any hope. The people cannot keep God's laws. <laughs> we can't keep God's laws. So is there, is there any hope here? Like, what is the point of trying because we're going to continue to fail? But if you're familiar with the Bible, I know most of us are, there is hope because we know the whole story. Now, the people here didn't. It's the end of the Old Testament. 400 years of silence goes by. So imagine you're those people. You're like, what just happened? And then, you know, a couple years later, like, it's still silent. Like, this, what is this longing and this waiting? Like, is it ever going to happen? Now, we have the benefit today. We have the full Bible. We, can, we know the full story. But Nehemiah, he preaches an implicit messianic message. There's only one who will keep the covenant perfectly. This story points forward to the ultimate way in which our sins can be atoned for. This story points forward to not a physical temple in Jerusalem, but Jesus himself as the temple. Not an imperfect priesthood, but Jesus himself, our great high priest. Not a sacrifice of animals, but Jesus himself as the Lamb of God. It's interesting, the, the book ends looking for a greater king than David. And the name David actually appears multiple times back in chapter 12. So you think about it, they had priests, they had a temple, they had the sacrificial system, but what did they lack? They lacked a king. They had all those other things, but they still did not have a king. And what do we do? We get to open the New Testament, and we see the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham in Matthew 1.1. In other words, the king has come. This 400 years of silence that goes by, we get to open it and see that this is the very beginning. And so the Old Testament leaves us longing for a king, along with a perfect sacrifice, a perfect priesthood, and a perfect temple, all of which are bound up in the person of Jesus. It tells us in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, 21. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And boy, do the people of Nehemiah's day need saving from their sins. And do we need saving from our sins today? The light has come. The sacrifice has come. The priest has come. The king has come. Forgiveness has come. Salvation has come. That should cause us to celebrate. That should cause us to smile and say things like, Amen. Nehemiah's ending leaves us longing for Advent. The one born in Bethlehem, he does keep God's law. The man whose zeal for God's house is, consumes him will take our curse. His back will be beaten. His beard will be plucked. His face will be sped upon. He will bear our sins and his body on the tree that we may be declared righteous through repentance and faith. Jesus Christ's holy ambition to please the Father has resulted in our salvation. And so that's what we get to press in this month. Yes, Nehemiah ends going, is there hope? And thankfully, we know the full story. And so the next month, we get to, really all year long, but especially the next month, we get to set aside these four weeks and say, hope is here. And now we, the new covenant believers, indwelt by the Spirit, will experience moments of reformation, and we will experience moments of renewal. But while we live in this fallen world, here's the reality. We will also experience failure. And so we await the second advent of the Lord Jesus, who will once and for all make all things new, and we, his redeemed, will live in a new Jerusalem apart from sin and shame forever. And so we get to celebrate that this month. And we get to respond to that week in and week out. Now I know in the city of Portland we talk about this a lot. And believe me, I know the stats. I've done the studies. I have these conversations. 
that it's unlikely on a Sunday night like this that, that people from our city are going to come into a gathering. But of all times of year, this is one of the two times, even in Portland, that people who are at least have a little bit of interest, the thing is we've got to go find who those people are, would maybe come. So I want to encourage you to invite people these next three weeks because hope is here. People in our city are longing for hope. The conversations I have with people, they have no hope. They represent Nehemiah 13, but hope is here. And I want us to invite these people in so they can have an interaction with Jesus and an interaction with a community that's learning what it means to follow him and follow him faithfully here in our city. And so I'm going to pray for us to end this chapter. And I'm going to actually have Nate come up tonight, and he's going to lead us into our response time. My encouragement is respond to Jesus, the only one in whom hope is found, whatever that looks like for you. And so let me pray for us, and Nate will come back, in, come back up and uh, transition us to our response time. God, we want to come to you. And although we finish this chapter tonight, and it looks like there is no hope, God, after this, it goes silent for 400 years. God, I try to place myself in those people's minds and those people's shoes and 